Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We've got an incredible show planned for you guys this evening. We are going to be discussing behavioral psychology and building products that create change. Thank you so much for being here. Whether you're listening to the podcast version of this or you're here now live with us right now. This is going to be a highly informative and entertaining show, so sit back, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for tonight is Matt Wallert. Matt is a behavioral scientist and entrepreneur for over 10 years. Matt has been applying behavioral science to practical problems from startup exits to Fortune 500 to an array of pro-social side projects. He's given hundreds of talks on the science of behavior, behavior change and is currently the healthcare industry's first chief behavior officer at Clover Health a Medicare Advantage plan changing the model of insurance by changing behavior. Matt is a graduate of both the Lee Po Chun United World College of Hong Kong and Swarthmore College. He also spent time in a PhD program at Cornell. He has given hundreds of talks on the science of behavior of change at such places such as TEDx, Virgin, and Microsoft. Matt, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Savior, heck to having me. Yeah, um, thank you so much. You gave me a little bit of a panic attack before the show, but it's okay. We're here. We're a little bit late, but it's good. We're we're right on time, my friend. Uh, the, one of my favorite West Wing episodes, um, the the President Bartlett has to go out and and do a debate, and his wife cuts off his tie just as he goes on stage, so hmm. that they have to hurriedly rip his tie off and put on a new tie, <laughs> and it helps him sort of stay in the moment. I sometimes think. You know, when it doesn't work out, when I have to rush on stage, sometimes those are the most fun because mm. I, I come in just live, totally live. And For since sure. this is a live podcast this time, this is kind of a fun experience. Yeah, there's an adrenaline rush. Definitely when that happens, there's a bit of a pattern interrupt as well. So tell us, you know, tell us how you got into this world of studying behavioral change. Give us sort of the background, set the stage for us a bit. Sure. Uh, so I'm a little bit of an unusual psychologist in the sense that, you know, I grew up in very rural Oregon. I don't think there were any psychologists anywhere near me, or I certainly, if there were, I certainly didn't know them. And I grew up with a very sort of, you know, traditional American view of what psychology was. You know, you go to some, you know, guy with a gray beard and you lay on his couch and he asks you very Freud-like questions and then he tells you how you feel. And, you know, when I got into college, 
I really got an opportunity to discover a whole different kind of psychology. Um, and so I fell into something that we call social psychology, which is not about sort of individual psychology, not about sort of abnormal psychology, but instead sort of about what makes us uh, uh, similar across people, hmm. right? And how we interact in very similar ways in reaction to our environment. And then one of the things that sort of comes out of that is, well, we then can change the environment to change how people behave. And so I got very interested in sort of making the world better by improving the environments in which people behave to help them change their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had some really, I had a wonderful experience where um, I had this professor and we read a paper about something called the IAT, um, the Implicit Association Test. Okay. Some of you, some of you may be familiar with it. You know, it, it, the most traditional version that people know of is the racial IAT. So it flashes good and bad words and black and white faces, and you have to very quickly categorize them left or right, left or right. Um, and what the authors propose is that it shows people's implicit bias. And I didn't disagree with the data they had collected, but I felt they were overreaching their interpretation. And my professor, this wonderful, wonderful teacher named Andrew Ward said this really amazing thing to me. He said, look, the field agrees with their interpretation, but mm -hmm. this is science. Mm -hmm. And in science, there is an orderly way to respond, which is to run your own experiment and prove that things are different than the way that we had understood them previously. For sure. And that's just like a, I mean, it just sort of blew my mind as an undergraduate because up to that point, you know, I had seen, you know, privilege, uh, articulate, you know, being smart. Those were the things that sort of made people win arguments and gave them power. And this approach to science was like, no, it doesn't matter that you're like a first gen generation college kid from rural Oregon, like you can be empowered by evidence. And so that just got me totally hooked. And I ended up, you know, sort of going through and getting my social psych degree and, and, and it sort of defined the rest of my career. Hmm, yeah, I mean, it really does. The book start at the end. It, it really does get into the science of it all. I'm not sure what I expected when I opened it. I mean, I... I'm really not sure what I expect. Maybe I judged it by the cover or something, but it really does dig into the science and sort of the meat of creating these products that that can build change for us. Is this is this your first book? It is my first and only book, and and certainly it's as far as I know and intend the last. Uh, <laughs> I I was not looking to be an author. Um, but, but, uh, this wonderful imprint portfolio, which is part of a random house came to me and, and really convinced me that, you know, they felt I had something to say and wanted to help me say it. And they did an amazing job of helping, you know, sort of get it out of me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing experience of writing something. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a four year old and one of the things as, as Xavier, you know, from reading the book it, it is in a very, you know, it's, it very much is in my voice. There's cursing, you know, it, it you know, it sort of, it's very self-referential. I use myself as an example. My family is an example. I make fun of myself throughout it. And someone pointed out to me after it came out, they said, you know, if something happened to you, you know, your, your kid now has this amazing, you know, sort of artifact that is very clearly you and the summation of your life's work to this point. Hmm. And it's it's sort of a lovely thing. And so I'm very glad to have written it. I don't know that I have anything more to say, but I'm glad that I had this to say right now. Well, I mean, you never know. I and mean, things might change later down the road. You might find yourself, you know, writing another book. But let's let's get into this one. Okay. So at the beginning of the book, you talk about 
Apple. I mean, that's that's a go-to when you're referencing products that that change the world, right? So, I mean, you talk about how the narrative around its success doesn't really tell the true story of of Apple, and then you get into something you call the two whys. What are the two whys, and and how do they they affect the way we build products? Yeah, so so Apple was chosen sort of deliberately because, to your point, it is sort of the canonical example, and people very often associate Apple's success with its brand, which I think certainly the brand is a component of it. But uh, you know, the way I always sort of think of products is, to your point, these two whys. So once we, when we're talking about designing for behavior change, right? Once we've established what behavior it is we want to change, which is a very important and not always easy first step. But once we've done that, then it essentially just boils down to two questions, which are, why would anyone ever want to do that? And why aren't people already doing it? Mm -hmm. And so if you said, you know, I want to get people to eat pistachio ice cream, you know, you would, you need to start from the place of, well, why would anyone ever eat pistachio ice cream? And why aren't, and given that there are reasons to eat pistachio ice cream, why are they not already eating pistachio ice cream? And that's what allows us to then systematically go you know, start to build interventions that act on the reasons that people would ever want to do it and then remove the barriers to acting on those motivations. Right, right. Huh. I mean, I find it fascinating to study this. So then you, you talk about different types of pressures, promoting and inhibiting pressures. And I mean, this is, I mean, the two whys are sort of at the heart of your book, but it, it's it's linked to promoting pressure and then second to inhibiting pressure. What do you mean by these different pressures and how do they how do they affect behavioral change? Yeah, sure. So promoting pressures are anything that makes a behavior more likely. Inhibiting pressures make a behavior less likely. Um, and so the canonical example I use in the book is, is M&Ms, right? You know, we eat them because of taste and brand and color and all these wonderful things. And then, you know, we things that make them less likely are, you know, availability, cost, et cetera. And so those are, you know, those are sort of mapped to those two questions, right? You could think of promoting pressures as what are all of the things that make, what are all the reasons that one might eat M&Ms? And I, I, I'm always a little... I don't love the word reasons because it leads us to this very logical place. And, you know, identity and emotion can be some of the most powerful reasons there are, right? Mm -hmm. It's not all logic, but, you know, there are these reasons to do things, which we call uh, promoting pressures. And then there are these inhibiting pressures, you know, the reasons not to do them, the things that make them more difficult. And, you know, that we have predictable errors, it turns out, as creators of things. So, for example, when you ask people to create you know, to create a behavior, I want Xavier to go to the gym more often, mm -hmm. they gravitate towards promoting pressures. So we have this bias, where it turns out we are more likely to generate uh, promoting pressure based interventions, when when it's phrased as more. And if I said, you know, how do you get Xavier to go less to the gym, right? Then you gravitate towards those inhibiting pressures. Well, I'll punish him. I'll make it harder to do. And so what that implies is that there is almost always opportunity space on the opposite side. We don't think enough about the barriers that prevent people from doing things. Instead, we just automatically think, well, they just don't want it enough. Um, and so I think by, you know, moving from sort of the the madmen world of just, you know, going with what's natural instead mapping out these pressures and, and more directly addressing them, we can get to a better place. You know, one of the examples I often use is, is helping women get raises, right? One of the really problematic narratives 
has been, you know, sort of, well, women just need to want it more. They need to be more aggressive. They need to lean in, et cetera. But I don't know any women that don't want to be paid fairly. Right? There's no women that I know that are like, yeah, I, I really want to be to, to make less than I'm worth. I want to get less than my business value. Sure. Right. But but because we sort of phrase it as a, well, they need to do X more, they gravitate towards those motivations when in reality, you know, women face a number of barriers, a number of what we would call inhibiting pressures that make it harder. And so if we want to change their behavior, what we really need to do is remove those inhibiting pressures, not focus on on sort of the promoting pressures. Huh, yeah, that's so fascinating. I, I was actually watching and when I was when I was reading this book, I it made me think of something that I saw of Steve Jobs. And it's like it was this video of him explaining how to market their products. And it was a phenomenal video. And he was talking about I mean, he brought up Nike and he brought up Apple and he was talking about selling, a, you know, like a, a vision. And he talked about how, you know, in these commercials that were do, performing the, the most well, that nor Nike was never talking about shoes. They weren't giving these technical like, examples of how their, their shoes, you know, make you walk better or run better or whatever. Uh, it is, it's really interesting to me how we can play with these different perceptions to the success of a brand or the, the failure of a brand. Absolutely. And, and I actually know the clip you're talking about. I think someone sent it to mm. me earlier this week. Um, I, so I was very fresh in my mind. The thing I think that, that maybe people miss in that is it's not just the brand. It's the connection of the brand to what they actually do. So um, I'll give you uh, Charles Travail over at Interbrand. Uh, and I had a conversation once and he actually made uh, and, and he did an experiment once where he, he made something. I can't remember the name right now. It was like an expectations index. But basically he measured, you know, if we show Xavier a commercial for an iPhone and then ask him, you know, what do you expect this iPhone will do for you? And then we give it an iPhone and let him play it, play, play with it. How well are, how congruent are those? Right. So does the does the advertising accurately portray the experience that you will have using the thing? And so he called it, you know, sort of the expectation gap or something where he, he looked at brands where, you know, their, their advertising gave you a false perception and brands where it gave you a much more real life expression. And I think the thing about Apple that was quite magical is, yes, they had these very lofty commercials about, you know, creating things using the iPhone, mm -hmm. but then they actually delivered on it, right? Like using an iPhone to create something actually is sort of magical and they have created an amazing device for creation. Right. And so, you know, it wasn't just an empty brand promise. This is where I think, you know, Coke, uh, you know, shows you images that would make you think if you drank a Coke that you would, you know, dance really well or look really fashionable or, you know, have a really great significant other or whatever. And in reality, drinking Coke will do none of those things for you. Right. And so I think it's that marrying of, you know, the promoting pressure that is that as identity and, and brand, et cetera, to the actual experience of using the thing that is that creates the sort of true magic. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was really thinking about um, promoting and inhi inhibiting pressures. And I was thinking about I was trying to think of examples of you know, ad campaigns or products that had shifted in, you know, the only thing that I could think of was like smoking, 
right? Like there there was this whole trend of celebrity smoking. That was a big thing through the 60s and then it it started to change, right? So, I mean, you talk about you talk about inhibiting pressure and how that is kind of your your favorite. Why why do you prefer that over promoting pressure? Well, I think, you know, part of it is the thing we already talked about a little bit, right? There is this notion that it just turns out that people ignore inhibiting most of the time when we think about changing behavior, we're trying to get people to do something more, right? Unless you have a kid, then you're often trying to think about get them to do something less. <laughs> but uh, in many, you know, in most professional contexts, it's about more of a behavior. And so that means the, the predictable error that they miss is not putting enough emphasis on the inhibiting pressure side. But there are some other special characteristics of inhibiting pressures that make them particularly attractive to me. One of them is the homogeneity. Um, it turns out that promoting pressures are, are, tend to be relatively uh, heterogeneous. So if, if you know we talk about going – let's go back to going to the gym. We want Xavier to go to the gym. Like Xavier goes to the gym because he wants you know six-pack abs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt goes to the gym because of the way it makes him feel. Uh, Bob goes to the gym because – you know, there's a, a, a pretty, uh, a, a person at the, you know, there's a pretty person at the, at the front desk, mm. right? Those are all different motivations, mm-hmm. but the inhibiting pressures are the same. You know, distance is an inhibiting pressure constant for all of us. The cost of the gym is an inhibiting pressure for all of us. Right. And so it turns out that in general, inhibiting pressures are more universal. And so what that means is, you know, sort of pound for pound, if I can remove one in promoting pressure or one inhibiting pressure, the inhibiting pressure will pay off across more people because uh, it turns out that the that that you know we all tend to be affected by the same inhibiting pressures. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it again. It, it's resoundingly accurate. It does it does fall true? I, I want to talk about IDP in, intervention design process. I mean, this this is the first time that I've actually read this word, heard this word before, so or this term before. So, I mean, why don't you explain that to us? Yeah, I mean, that's because I made it up. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so don't feel bad. <laughs> you missed nothing. I made it up. Um, yeah, we just needed a way to... So, so I, uh, to the horror of my publisher, uh, when they first talked to me, I was like, I really want to write a handbook, right? Like the, my original title for this thing was like the handbook of applied, you know, behavioral science. And they were like, you can't call it that. No one will buy it. Uh, but like, I wanted something that was really intensely practical. You know, I love pop psych books. There's a number of really great books out there, but I think that they, while they stir up our interest, they don't actually tell us, they don't change our behavior. I sort of, at the beginning of the book point out the whole point of my book is to change your behavior, right? If you don't walk away from the book more likely to actually go create behavior change, then I have failed in my job. Hmm. And so one of the ways to reduce the inhibiting pressure to changing your behavior is to give you a very structured process to follow. And that's what the IDP is. It's not meant to be the be all end all. I'm sure someone will come up with a better version, right? And I think that's great. I hope people do. But what I can do as the author is sort of say, here's a template that makes it a little easier to do. So the, the IDP describes a, you know, roughly eight to 10 week process in which you articulate a behavior that you want to change through something we call the behavioral statement. You then um, go out and do quantitative and qualitative insights to try and understand by looking at data and observing humans, like what the, you know, how to answer those two questions. Why would anybody ever want to do this? And why are they not already doing this? Mm-hmm. You then map that out into those pressures and start to design interventions. And then really key, because remember, this is science. 
you go and actually pilot interventions, right? So you actually go try things in the world and measure whether they are effective, um, which is, I think, really, really key to, to, you know, sort of the advancement of the human species and, and sort of better products is the notion that we can actually go try things first, see if they work, iterate, 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 iterate before we're like ready to actually bring things to scale. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much I want to ask you, Matt. So there's, okay, there are these few examples. <laughs> Facebook has, it creates no content. Uber ha- owns no cars whatsoever. Airbnb uh, owns, owns no hotels. They're do- What are they doing that is so different that has led to such a great success that they've, they've sort of encountered? Yeah, I, uh, so some of it, you know, the success of a company is never one thing, right? It's timing. It's a zeitgeist of many things that are, that are going on in the world. But I mean, I think if you look at something like Facebook, you know, Facebook was tremendously effective at changing, uh, uh, people's behavior and, and Facebook in particular, you know, I think often companies that are very successful at changing our behavior, uh, see something or, and often stumble on it that, you know, maps to a very core motivation or something that we hadn't previously realized. Hmm. I think Facebook's sort of version of that was identity. I don't think they realized, I don't think people prior to that had, had really clearly articulated and understood that as disposable income goes up, people will spend the dominant amount of their time and money on, you know, sort of trying to stand out or fit in or both. And so by creating a really handy tool, you know, Facebook has an amazing dual purpose, right? It both makes us feel connected to everybody else, but also gives us a chance to be unique, special individuals. And so that combination, I think, prior to Facebook was very rare. You know, in Uber's case, for example, I really do think it was payment, right? I don't think people realized how strong the inhibiting pressure of payment was. And it's actually interesting to me in many ways, I feel like people still haven't. It is shocking to me. We're what, you know, 10, 15 years out from, from Uber. I think it's it's been 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Why are we still paying in restaurants? I don't understand. Like, Given the complaint, you know, people are like, it's a hard problem. Yes, I get it's a hard problem. Lots of things are hard problems. It is astonishing to me that I still have to wait for a check. Hmm. Right. Given the, I think what Uber has demonstrated, the the incredible power of just when I'm done, I get up and leave. Mm -hmm. Right. Can't, I mean, it's just shocking to me that we have not removed that inhibiting pressure of payment across more, uh, across more, um, uh, sort of places in the food chain. Sure, sure. I mean, it, what has changed in the last, you know, ten years? Is it information? Is it the way? Is it the way that we connect socially because of the internet? I mean, is it is it a platform that we're giving these new spaces? I mean, entrepreneurship has kind of exploded in the last you know, fifteen, twenty years or so. Yeah, I mean, uh, entrepreneurship has. I think there's two factors that have really made entrepreneurship sort of. There's a promoting pressure and there's an inhibiting pressure. Um, on, the, on the inhibiting pressure side, it is now much easier to, to sort of get to a minimum version of a product quickly. 
across almost every across almost every part of creating a product. So meaning it's now easier to market something than it's ever been before. It's now easier to actually literally build something than it's ever been before, right? It's 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 easier to then measure the effectiveness of things more than, than it's ever been before. So I think that those sorts of things, you know, that reduction of inhibiting pressure around just the creation process, right, is so much, you know, I think people would be blown away. You know, if you transported somebody from 100 years ago, people would be blown away by how easy it is to create, right? And I think 100 years from now, we'll experience that as well. I think that, you know, if we could fast forward, you know, it'll just be, it is even to me, right? So I'm 37 years old, right? In my lifetime, uh, uh, you know, in my sort of teenage years onward, there has been digital photography, but it used to be really, really hard, right? You had to like, you take a picture onto a camera, then you had to connect the camera to a computer, then you had to like process it in Facebook and the and the pictures were all really bad and so you had to color correct them and you had to like, you know, edit out all the, all the dust and the bits and the whatever, you know. And now, right, almost essentially seamlessly, I can take a nearly perfect picture like automatically, I don't have to download or upload it or do anything anywhere. It lives around, is it on my phone? It's backed up in the cloud. I can auto share it on whatever, right? Set up appropriately, the inhibiting pressures are almost nil, mm -hmm. which is why the creation velocity has gone up so much. The other thing about entrepreneurism, entrepreneurism that has changed is, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a sort of a perfect age to have watched this happen. Hmm. When I was younger, nobody talked about entrepreneurs. Right. It was not an identity based statement. And if it was, it was sort of like, you know, a negative identity based statement. Right. It was sort of a sketchy thing to do. Now it's, you know, everybody wants to be it. It's an incredibly desirable thing to be. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so I the way that I'm so often struck by this because that is not universally true globally. Um, and so as a guy who gets to travel a fair bit and do speaking engagements in other parts of the world, you know, I often get to be in environments where, you know, being an entrepreneur is still considered a little bit sort of risky and edgy and something that, you know, sort of it's like a little like being a starving artist. Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so watching that play out and watching the struggle of entrepreneurial people as they, you know, try and interact in an environment where everyone is telling them that that's the wrong choice. Uh, I think is really is really interesting. Yeah, I mean there there is there does seem to be a sort of feature of the entrepreneurship sort of vision or role that is regarded in a very starving artist sense. It maybe culturally it is that. I mean, is there is there a single thing that you see? I mean, you're in the startup world quite a bit. So, I mean, is there a single thing, a resounding universal truth that you see? founders doing that you th you know that you think or you regard as this is the right move this is what you did correctly this is how you saw through a problem is anything like that yeah i mean the number one thing that i think people do correctly and this is very hard to do i think is figure out how to run the right sized pilot right meaning too small and you can falsely abandon an idea or falsely confirm something and really think it's the right thing. Uh, and too large, you know, you can just run out of sort of um, resources before you have time to pivot, right? And so there's this very interesting sort of threading the needle effect where, you know, you just want to hit just the right size 
that you still maintain enough resources to be able to pivot around and sort of, you know, get the right thing, but that you're not, you know, so small that you reach a sort of a false confirmation or a false rejection of an idea. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, has there, have you noticed or seen like these sort of unicorns that maybe would give a false impression of, you know, the, the range of, of time it takes the success of a product or launch? Yeah, I mean, part of that, I, yes. And I think part of the problem is narrative, right? Like, you know, I feel like I'm talking about Uber a lot and, and given how much I hate sort of the, the sexism of their founder. Um, but like Uber is a good example where I think what people tell the narrative, they're like overnight, right? It took over the world. And I'm like, uh, you mean over the course of 10 years, right? right? Like that's not quite overnight, man. Right. Like it, it was very, very long and you know, it's sort of taking, you know, it has had a profound change and relative to its change, I can understand what people are saying, right? They're saying, well, you know, given the size of the magnitude of the behavior change, it sure seems short, but you know, 10 years is a long time, man. I got a four year old and he changes every week. Right. Like I think that people just have this, this narrative where, and you know, it's part of the way that, that, you know, sort of human recall works. You know, we have this tendency to, to, not accurately understand time and having done start, you know, been successful at building and selling startups, man, it's long, it's a slog, you know, it may look like an overnight success. And part of the problem is there's a tipping point, right? Um, you know, there are not all startups, by the way, have a hockey stick, but many of them do. And so there's this tremendously long period where you're working very hard and nobody knows who you are. And then all of a sudden it seems like everybody knows who you are. Right. right? And that's true. Media is a really another, you know, we don't have to go to startups for that. Media is a great example of that, right? There's this artist that nobody's heard of. And then all of a sudden it feels like everybody's talking about right. them, right? And then, you know, either they have staying power or they don't. Books, great example, you know, like, you know, it's it takes a really long time to write a really good book. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the writing. I mean, it took me 10 years to figure out how to do this right. Sure. Uh, the writing was the easy part. For sure. And so... You know, that journey is very, very long. And I think that people misunderstand that, you know, so many ideas people just give up too early. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I think I think that's there's no question. I mean, I think a lot of people see the end result of whatever a product might be or, you know, whether it's an artist and, and uh, a new album that they're releasing or, you know, the the growth of a company and sort of the mapping of a product to, to launch and then you know you receiving it on this this end and you thinking oh well wow you know they they struck gold here and you know they were able to do something no one else did and that's not often the case it, it's usually a lot of failure that comes with you know true success is just failing over and over and over until you finally kind of get it right yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that, you know, it's like any expertise, right? You spend years learning how to make something look, look easy, right? Um, it, I, people often sort of, uh, uh, comment on my speaking style, right? Because I'm a very unusual speaker. I, everyone in my talks is different. I don't prepare at all. I have no notes and no slides. I just go up and talk about my thing. I love that. And People often sort of comment on that and they're like, oh, you make it look so easy. And I'm like, yeah, because I know my topic super fucking well, right? <laughs> I spent a really long time like getting really good at this one thing, right? And so, yeah, if you ask me to talk about that thing, I do really well. Um, I, I often think about 
you know, what if you asked a company to solve another kind of problem, right? So this is sort of my my way of staying humble as a founder and as a, as a startup executive, right? Is to like, you know, sure. But if you went to the, the, the you know, Travis and you said, okay, Travis, now solve, you know, medicine, like, yeah, maybe he'll be okay at it, but chances are he's going to be terrible at it, right? Like, you know, prior success when success is one, is a data point of one, right, predicts almost nothing about the future, right? Um, it's only repeated success that does. And so, you know, the people that, are, that my heroes in the entrepreneurism space are people like Dave Cancel, right? David Cancel uh, uh, over in Boston, you know, you just look at his resume of stuff and you're like, dude, like you're like 10 companies in and everything you touch turns to gold. So either you're the best company picker I've ever seen or you're just really good at this. Right. And so, I mean, there, there are some people who are just sort of born to do this and to create products and solve problems. And then there are others that, you know, go the other direction and it's, it's a hard road to learn that, you know, you're not that guy. You know, you're just not really meant to lead a company, lead the charge. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, there's a, there's a very formative experience for me. I, I often uh, lecture at Columbia, Columbia, and um, they had a one of my friends there runs a summer program for for young entrepreneurs. It's, it's you know, it's run out of the business school, and so you know, young kids, high school kids come around the world to participate in this entrepreneurism program. And I remember giving a talk one summer, and I said, "How many of you want to be the CEO of your startup?" And every single one of them raised their hand. And I said, <laughs> and, and I said, look, do you, how many of you think I'm really cool? And everybody raised their hand because they're required to. And, you know, because I'm old and they're young. Uh, and so they were like, ah, yeah, you're really cool. And I was like, I have no desire to be the start, the CEO of anything ever. I've never been the CEO and I never want to be the CEO. And this was really challenging for a lot of them because in their minds, right, they had, that was, that was, you know, what it means to be an entrepreneur is to be this one thing. And I think it's not that. Find the thing that you're good at. And hopefully you love that thing. And, and you know, but find the thing that you're really good at and do that. Startups need CMOs and they need CTOs and they need, you know, heads of biz dev and they need product people. And they need, you know, they need all of these things in order to function. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you don't have to be good at all of them. You just have to be good at one of them. And and then have a broad interest in the rest. You know, I talk often about I have a very, very, very diverse team at Clover um, of the people that work for me. You know, I only have one white guy and recently added a second uh, uh, white woman. But everybody else is a pe person of color and, mm. and um, the, uh, everyone else is a person of color uh, uh, and a woman, actually. Um, and so. Uh, and they come from really tremendously diverse backgrounds, personally, professionally, et cetera. And so the first time we ever had a team meeting, you know, I was, I have a very ask me anything sort of style, style. And so one of them was like, why us, right? You've built this really weird looking team, man. This doesn't look like any team I've ever seen. Like why us? And so I gave them something, uh, a scale from psychology called the need for cognition scale. Hmm. And it's basically a measure of like, how much do you take pleasure in thinking? Um, and so, and it's a lovely scale because I think a lot of scales sort of telegraph what the right answer is. And I don't think it does this, you know, it has, it has items like, I really hope everything in my life is a puzzle, right? Not everybody would say yes to this. Lots of people would say, man, that sounds really terrible. I, <laughs> I don't want everything in my life to be a puzzle. Um, 
But they all, of course, score off the charts high on the need for cognition. And so I talk about, you know, having a T-shaped team. They all have individual expertise that they're very good at, but they have really broad interest. And so we talk about, you know, the bottom part of the T is their legs and the and the, the top part of the T is their arms. And the thing I always tell them is, you know, your legs help you stay grounded and your arms help you fly, right? So having really deep, deep expertise at something um, gives you the ability to always be employed and employable, right? Because you know you can always get a job in that expertise. But, you know, having broad interests, create, you know, being curious about the world, being really engaged is what gives you the ability to really have exponential sort of job growth is that is that ability to sort of spread your arms and sort of be interested in a little bit of everything um, while still maintaining that deep expertise. And I think mm -hmm. that that's one of the one of the hard parts for for the generation directly below me is I feel like people often only get one of those. So they're sort of jack of all trade folks who or jill of all trade folks who sort of like, you know, have done a really good job of, of curating their curiosity, but they haven't really found something that they can have deep expertise in and vice versa. There are some people who are incredibly skilled at one thing, but have sort of neglected being interested in, in and engaged in the rest. And I think that's a, that's a real challenge for, for that generation. And, and I, you know, one of my fervent hopes is that we find ways to make it okay for them to, to, you know, sort of both curate expertise and go, go, you know, be interested broadly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I, there, I'm watching the, the chat go by right now and there are people griping about, you know, running startups and it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, but I wanted to ask you about a situation, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, it's the early 1900s, like just the turn of the century. And it's a battle of two minds, Thomas Edison, Nikola Tesla. And there, there was something that they did completely differently. Right. And, I guess Edison was able to take his product to market better. That's why we, you know, use, I mean, that's why we know more about him. And Nicola, I mean, he's, he's not really talked about, you know, in, in the mainstream. So why, why do you think that is? What do they do differently there? Well, they ran, I mean, first of all, uh, I am, I'm going to talk about it, but I should point out that there are people who have, have thought very deeply about this and are much more articulate than I am about it. Um, I think actually one of my, uh, uh, so, so weirdly, uh, um, there's a wonderful author, Graham Moore, who I know very well. Um, and in, in, during when we were doing the second startup, he wrote his second book in our space. Um, and it is actually, it's, it's he writes often sort of historical fiction and he actually writes specifically about Westinghouse, uh, uh, Nikola Tesla and, and Edison and sort of the race to, 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 uh, uh the light bulb. And sort of like broad lighting and electricity across the United States. Hmm. And, you know, he sort of highlights the way that they ran very, 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 very different labs. Um, you know, Edison essentially ran a factory. His, he, he, in many ways, I think actually um, was doing what unfortunately I think we're too often encouraging um, – you know, entrepreneurs to do these days, which is just endlessly iterate, right? So he was, I'm going to throw a thousand scientists at it hmm. and they're all going to try slightly different variations. And then one of those variations will work, um, which was very, very different than Tesla, right? Who had very few economic resources. And so he was very pointy, right? He was like, you know, uh, he was chose very carefully what he was doing. He pursued in a, in a sort of very narrow way, um, very specific theories. 
And so, you know, both of those, if you're trying to, to hit a target, you can aim or you can get a shotgun. And they're both valid ways of doing the thing. Um, you know, I tend to, I think the sort of notion of the IDP is to like aim your shotgun, hmm. right? Meaning it, you do need to run probably more than one pilot, but you shouldn't just be aiming like only a fool doesn't aim, right? You have the opportunity to aim. It takes only a very short amount of time to spend some time looking at the data, you know, and doing the quantitative and qualitative things that will allow you to derive insight. And so why wouldn't you do that? Which, you know, it just always seems sort of weird to me that people have, have, you know, constructed a world where they're not. Hmm. Yeah, um, I appreciate that answer. And you know, just bringing it back onto the topic here, we kind of went off the rails, my fault. Um, so behavioral <laughs> statement, you know, what, what you talk about this in the book, how important is a behavioral statement to the, the process of building a product? I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely critical. And, and uh, I, if anything, I think it's hard, right? Because when you build a process, you're like, no, every part of it is essential. And depending on what time of day you catch me, I might be like the thing people screw up the most is blank, right? I think sure. even earlier in this interview, I said, you know, the problem is that people don't do the the piloting, the science part. Right. But I, I, I do have to say that, like, certainly it all begins with with clearly articulating a behavior. And so we talk in the book about writing a behavioral statement, which has, you know, motivation and a population and limitations and a behavior and a way to measure it. Um, but it really is, uh, of all of that, it's articulating a behavior that you want. So, so often people articulate things that are not behaviors to me, right? They're like, I want people to love my product. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, I, I want them to love it. And I'm like, okay, well, but what does that mean? Like, how would you know a person loved it? Hmm. And they said, yeah, well, they'll talk about it. Okay. I'm like, okay, great. So your goal is to get people to talk about your product, Right. Is it, is it okay if they talk badly about your product? No, well, I don't want that. Okay, so great. Your behavior is you want people to talk positively about your product, right? That's a behavior. We can go design to create something that people will talk positively about, right? And we can remove the inhibiting pressures. You know, we can make share buttons and we can make it easier for people to talk. And, you know, all these things. It's so interesting to me. Many of the things that you would even use on the promotion of this show are psychological in nature, sure. right? The very notion of a share button is the removal of an inhibiting pressure. Sharing the share button does not make the content any more interesting at all, <laughs> right? There's no promoting pressure of the share button. The mm -hmm. share button is simply inhibiting pressure reduction, right? And so consciously articulating, I want people to share it, creates is what creates the, sh the share button. You can't get there unless you are consciously articulate the behavior that you want. And so I think um, writing a good, clean behavioral statement is, is sort of the fundamental part of the process. And, you know, it's all downhill from there. If you know the behavior you want to create, in my experience, having watched people do this a lot, the rest tends to sort of fall in line. Right. It becomes increasingly obvious how to how to make that happen. If you can get to really being really, really, really clear about the one thing you actually want people to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the next thing that you bring up is anchoring and adjustment. And you talk about how this is you know key to developing uh, writing a behavioral statement that is in line with sort of your vision. What are those two things? If you could get into that, please. 
Yeah, so we, sure, we can talk about the anchoring adjustment effect. So this is a well-known effect in psychology. Um, the the canonical example, right, is if I said, you know, Xavier, how tall is the is the is the Empire State Building taller or shorter than a hundred feet? Taller. Right. Uh, okay, great. So how tall is the Empire State Building? Do you think? It's like thirteen thousand something feet. That's probably too much, right? I don't know. That's going to be your guess. That's a good, that's a good guess. I like it. Right. And so then I go to, I go to Bizarro Xavier, right? I go to Katana, right? I go, I don't don't talk to Xavier anymore. I talk to Katana and I say the same thing. I say, okay, well, is the Empire State Building taller or shorter than a million feet? Hmm. I I just looked it up, by the way, it's 1,454 feet. Oh my God. It's way off. so we go to Bizarro Katana and we say, you know, is it taller or shorter than a million feet? And and you would say shorter, right? Because it's obviously not a million feet. And then I'd say, well, how tall is, is you know, the sort of the Empire State Building? And you might say 10,000 feet or 100,000 feet, right? Because you're adjusting down from that piece. And so in a behavioral statement, one of the reasons that we always articulate the behavior as absolute, so meaning I want, you know, people to to, you know, hundred percent of the time to do this thing, not 50% of the time, not 25% of the time is because the moment you actually, you know, sort of go down from the absolute, it leaves wiggle room for, well, you know, I just don't need to get those people or I don't need to have that happen there. Right. And so when we express absolutes, we're actually much more likely to hit the target. If we sort of, you know, we're much more likely to get to the 90%, you know, if we say a hundred instead of 50. Hmm. And so that's why we write very co- concrete, absolute behavioral statements, right? When someone wants to go somewhere, they will take an Uber 100% of the time. Now, obviously, that will never happen, right? People will walk and take buses and subways and all sorts of other things. But by articulating it in that way, we 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 don't artificially limit ourselves from what we can achieve. Hmm. Okay. Um, you, know, you, you bring, you know, raising your kid up in the book quite a bit. And you talk about using these different types of pressure to change his behavior. So what, what are pressure mapping and validation? What are those two different things? Yeah, sure. So, so, uh, pressure mapping is, is the notion after we, of of sort of, uh, formalizing the, the insights that we have into promoting inhibiting pressures. Right. And so if I, you know, want to get my son to go to sleep, right? What are all of the things that might make him less likely to go to sleep, like light and sound, right? And what are all the things that make him more likely to go to sleep, like being tired, right? Uh, or, or, you know, being full. Um, and so, you know, uh, what you're doing when you're, when you're writing out those, those sort of promoting and inhibiting pressures is, is, you know, mapping, giving yourself a map to, to sort of formalize um, those pieces so that you then can build interventions against them, right? Because if I say, you know, the next step that comes after that, right, is if I can, if I say, well, you know, light is an inhibiting pressure and sound is an inhibiting pressure, then it becomes fairly obvious that what I need to do is get blackout curtains and and a noise machine, Hmm. right? And so the intervention is derived from the pressures. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up. That's the, that's the next on my list of questions. But you, you open the chapter with a description of how creativity and the pursuit of no, novelty can derail the process of uh, intervention design. How how does that work? Yeah, and so I, I think this, you know we sort of talked about this, touched on it very briefly earlier, right? One of the hobgoblins is that we 
have have become vastly over-anchored as a society on the sort of like sexy, interesting, creative approach to a thing, right? But often, you know, sort of the boring is very effective at changing behavior, right? Uh, making it so that you – there's nothing particularly sexy about being able to get out of a car without paying, right? Um, you know, payment is not a sexy space, and yet payment innovation can very powerfully change our behavior, right? Um, and so I think that when people pursue the novel instead of the effective, it can often lead them to sort of you know, fall in love with ideas that are not very good at actually changing behavior, Right. Um, no, sometimes novelty changes behavior. It's not that, you know, novel is always bad, but novelty itself is very unlikely to change behavior. Things don't get different just because the solution is, is you know, sort of sexy and, and attractive. Right. Things get different because they do. Right. That's a beautiful thing about science is that the goal and the measure are the same. Right. Huh. Meaning if the goal is behavior change and what you measure is behavior change, then you don't have to worry how attractive something is. Uh, or rather like you and I don't have to get in a debate whether A or B is better because there's a there's an absolute ruler for doing that, right? We can measure how much better A or B is because when we've articulated a behavior in a way of that measuring that behavior, then all we have to do is deploy A and B and observe right. which one creates the behavior. Right. Huh. I mean, I find that fascinating. I mean, it that's that's really curious. It seems like that works against the grain because you know, when I think about designing something, I'm thinking about how to make it attractive and sexy. I'm not thinking about, okay, how can we make this more boring, right? Yeah, I mean, but but one of the things that's really interesting is like not everything we want attention on, right? We want to spend attention very carefully. And so, you know, when we try to make everything attractive and sexy, like – you know, Uber's a, a fair example here, uh, since we're using it all night long. Like, uh, Uber's a fair example here because, like, U Uber works really well when you don't think about Uber at all, right? The perfect version, like, let's talk about an Uber killer. Let's say you said to me, Matt, okay, let's go design the thing that's better than Uber. I would go build many, many, many integrations so that you never had to think about Uber ever again. Instead of taking out the app and telling it where you are and where you want to go, I would, you know, I don't know, build it on top of your calendar so that as soon as you were done, mm. the Uber just pulled up, mm -hmm. right? And it automatically knew where your next thing was because it had predictive AI and figured all that out for you. And so you never had to think about it, hmm. right? Which is really in some ways what Uber did, right? You know, as a, as a we talked about how I have frequent travelers, right? So before Uber, I had to rent a car. I had to have a map. Right. Uh, you know, before smartphones, I had to print it out a map, right? Map quest directions, right? Mm -hmm. I had to think a lot, I had to spend tremendous mental energy to the to getting from A to B. And now, if it's a major city, I can just kind of assume that Uber can get me from A to B. And so all I really need to know is where I am and where I want to go. Hmm. Right. And so the way to then iterate on that and improve is to make it so that I don't even have to know where I am or where I want to go. All of that is taken care of for me. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it reminds me of, I was reading about Steve Jobs and part of the technique that he used to create sort of more mental energy so, so, so that he could create. Um, it was just reducing the number of decisions that he made in any given day. So which is why you see him wearing sort of the same turtleneck every single day is because he's just removing that energy expenditure 
you know, that, so his brain doesn't have to make that decision anymore. And so, I mean, is that part of the process, just eliminating that inconvenience of having to think about, you know, doing something? Well, it's interesting, right? Because sometimes inconvenience, you know, uh, uh, causes us to have epiphanies, right? And so I, for example, um, at Microsoft, uh, when I worked there, I was, there were people who were like, oh, we should have free lunch, like Google has free lunch. And I was like, no, because if we do that, we will never create any of the things that make lunch easier, right? Because for other people, right, we'll never create, you know, automatic payment. If you never experience the pain of paying, you never create automatic payment, right? You have to experience unpleasantness in their world. Um, but that said, you know, I do think, and and you know, Steve Jobs was was one practitioner of this, but I think there've been many, right? You know, Obama got rid of blue suits, right, so that he didn't have to tell the difference between black and blue, which can be quite hard to do. Uh, in suiting, like there are many examples of people doing this. I, for example, um, I don't wear the same thing every day. I just auto. I I went a step farther. I just automated it. So I have a little script on eBay that just buys like John Varvato's forty R blazers below a certain price point. Well, they just. Uh, my computer buys them and puts them in my closet and presto, right? Like I wear the same thing every day. It's not exactly the same thing, but it was all bought by a computer for me, right? Um, I often think about there's a uh, the movie Training Day, and there's a great scene where Ethan Hawke's character, um, who who you know has been sort of tricked into getting high by um, uh, by Denzel, Denzel Washington. Yeah. yeah, so Denzel sort of tricks him into getting high, and they go to visit this older cop, right? And you know, Ethan Hawke sort of slumped in a chair, kind of being high, and, and Denzel and the older cop are talking kind of about the secret of the streets. And, and sort of high Ethan pipes up. He's like, I know the secret of the streets. And, and you know, Denzel's like, yeah, shut up, man. And But the older cop's like, nah, I'll let him talk. And, and, and what he says is, you know, the secret is to control your smiles and cries. Control your smiles and cries. And that had I always think is had a lot of effect on me. I, I was very interested in, you know, the sort of, recipe for happiness is controlling what things you allow to make you happy or unhappy, hmm. right? You have some control over that, right? The beautiful thing, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine yesterday who who happens to run international business development for uh, uh, Condé Nast and therefore Vogue. And so he's very fashionable. And we were talking about my sort of automating my clothing. And I said, one of the things that is beautiful about it is if the guy, we were, we were sitting in a, in a hotel bar. And I said, if the guy next to me spills his drink all over this, you know, his, his, brightly colored drink all over this all over this jacket and stains it that's okay because it only cost me twenty dollars and it was already you know like it was reused when i got it right meaning because mm -hmm. it was used clothing yeah and so i don't have a negative environmental impact if i literally throw it away and i have a very small economic impact on myself whereas if this was i a, a genre Vedas blazer that i bought new for a thousand dollars sure right now i have to take it to the dry cleaners which is terrible for the environment I have to feel bad for the rest of my day. I got to get in a fight with this guy in a bar. He feels bad. I feel bad. I lost a bunch of money. I got to take it to a drag it's Like It's a negative experience all around, right? <laughs> I have the ability to control those things that are important to me. And I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't care about anything. I think people sometimes hear this story and what they take from that is, well, no one should care about their clothes. No, what I'm saying is if clothes are incredibly important to you, you should make that a focal part of your life. Spend your time and your money and your mental energy there uh, uh, I think that's important, but if they're not, don't, <laughs> right? Uh, hmm. I, 
you know, the contra example is I built every desktop computer I've owned since I was, you know, 15 years old. And I would never let someone else build my computer. I like that process. I, I do sweat that I do sweat it. I spend way too much money on it. You know, I do get sad when it breaks, right? Like I, I do sweat those things because it gives me pleasure. The act of doing that is part of my animus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think thinking carefully about what you, you know, what you want to allow to have impact in your life um, is really critical and important. I want my kid to be able to both make me incredibly happy and incredibly sad. Hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's a desirable end state um, for me. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It fits. We're, we're running short on time, so I apologize if I'm speeding through these. Priming moderation mediation. Uh, you you get into this in your book, so you know what what do each of these mean? You don't have to rush, but what do these mean, and and what you know what is required of us to sort of understand them? Oh man, that's a really hard one to explain. It shortly. Uh, uh, so prior, so mediation moderation are statistical terms for for how how you know sort of some mathematical relationships between variables work. Um, but basically, the notion here is that. Uh, what matters for behavioral change is sometimes you you have to create new pathways, right? You can create a direct connection between, for example, an identity and a behavior. And sometimes you have to go through another third point in between, right? So meaning, you know, the identity is correlated with, with you know, the third point and the behavior is correlated with the third point. And so there is a connection between the identity and the behavior, but only as a mod only as it's moderated through through this third point. And so understanding the the causal relationships versus the correlational relationships between things can help you build better things. Hmm. OK, OK. How important is the ethical check when we're talking about IDP? Um, OK. Uh, so the ethical check is is absolutely vital, right? Um, so as as you noted in the book, there is a chapter on ethics. Um, I believe very strongly that behavioral science behavioral science is is morally agnostic, right? The ability to change behaviors is not good or bad, right? Um, so people use words. I often get in get in you know sort of interviewed, and people are like, "Well, you're manipulating people," and I'm like, "Well, manipulation is about like manipulation itself, like." is is agnostic right hmm. for example when i say my son manipulates those legos he's not like morally offending the legos mm -hmm. right it's just literally he's moving them that's what manipulation means mm -hmm. um and so behavioral science itself is agnostic instead what is, is key is how you use it and you know as i frequently point out to people like you don't want to get on my bad side right like if you, if you want to go to war you don't want to be on the other side of me and so, cause I've been doing this a really long time. And so if what you do is read my book and use it to, you know, sell sugar water to kids, hmm. I can't stop you from doing that, but I can fight you and I will. And so, you know, the ethical ch check is about making sure that when we change behavior, we change it in a way that someone, if you made obvious the behavior, you know, it doesn't require that you always make obvious the behavior change. It, what it requires is that if you did make obvious the behavior change, the person would agree to it. And if you, I think if you made obvious to someone, you know, the devastating effects of selling sugar water to kids, they would not agree to it. And thus that is not a, an ethical use of behavior change. Hmm, okay. I'm not sure if you mentioned, I, I wanted you to cover this, uh, the, the different gaps, uh, intention action gap and the intention goal gap. 
Sure. Yeah. So let's lose, use the flu shot as a really great example. So the intention action gap is what we usually talk about in social psychology. I mean to go to the gym. I don't go to the gym, man. Right. Like, you know, there, I have the intention of doing something, but I don't actually do it. But there is another kind of gap that we don't often look at that is actually incredibly important, which is, um, you know, sort of the, the, uh, you know, action outcome gap. So where I don't, uh, I never had the intention of doing things in the thing in the first place, despite the fact that I wanted that outcome, right? So with a flu shot, there's a difference between, ah, man, I meant to get a flu shot, but I just didn't get a flu shot, right? I was busy or they were out of it when I got there or I had to pay money that I wasn't expecting, right? Those are all, you know, a, a sort of in, intention action gaps. I intended, I didn't mean to. But there are also people who don't want to get the flu, but have no intention of getting the flu shot, right? An intention outcome gap. And, and, and that's a huge problem, right? And too often we assume things are intention action gaps, right? Everyone wants to get the flu shot and they just don't do it. No, some people genuinely have no intention of doing it, but they don't want to get the flu. Hmm. And so that's an opportunity to help change their behavior and help them recognize, you know, where the behaviors that they have aren't going to get them where they want to go. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, you know, after the ethical check comes the testing period, um, where, you know, how, can you describe what a pilot is and you know, how it would vary in size and scope? Yeah, 100%. So, so we talk about pilot test and scale, right? So piloting is, um, you know, running very, very small. And you're just trying to see if there's anything even there, right? Is this a valid route to changing a behavior? So you're still measuring behavior change. You're probably not going to get statistical significance. You know, the, the sort of rule of thumb sometimes that I always, you know, sort of use, and it changes a lot depending on what the behavior is. And so I don't want to get people to get over lankered on this. But, you know, a pilot is 20 people. A test is 200 people. You know, a, a scale is 2 million people, hmm. right? And the idea is... You know, you try lots of things on 20 people, you relatively fewer on 200 people, and then very few on, on 2 million people. Hmm. And so, but the purpose of pilot, so people often are tempted to skip out on that step, right? Because, you know, they want to rush to the 2 million, and, and many things are never tested at all and just rolled out to the 2 million. And, hmm. and I think you will learn really interesting things from piloting, right? And I think a lot of harm could be avoided if we first make sure that things actually create the behavior we want. Hmm. Okay. So, you know, getting to the, the final stages of IDP, we t you talk about something called the piranha effect. What is, yeah. what is that? How does it relate to sort of the effect of cognitive attention? What is the piranha effect? Yeah. So the piranha effect is, this this sort of notion uh, um, quoted by a, 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 a psychologist or a sort of data scientist at uh, statistician at Columbia, uh, the product effect is basically if I added up all of the interventions, often they would they would uh, equal more than 100 percent. Right. So imagine I have three different interventions and intervention A is about 50 percent effective at getting people to do something. And intervention B is about 40 percent effective at getting people to do something. And intervention C is about 30 percent effective at doing something. Well, math you know, in our minds, we're like A plus B plus B, 40% plus, you know, 50% plus 40% plus 30%, that's 120%, right? It should make everybody do the thing. But in reality, if I deploy A, B, C, it, you'll get to 55%. And the reason is that, you know, A was clearly the best intervention, but, you know, A plus B, you know, they cannibalize each other a little bit. That's where you get the piranha. They, you know, sort of swim around and eat each other. And so, when we talk about something of like, you know, mental attention, you know, 
I could deploy all the anti-smoking things I want, but they're not going to get me to 100% anti-smoking because they sort of compete with each other for your attention. And sometimes, sometimes less is more. That's why piloted testing and scaling is so important, right? Is because, you know, I'm I'm not just trying to find something that works. I'm trying to find something that works given all of the other things that are also currently working, right? Um, because very often, you know, once you deploy it, you'll find that, you know, the sort of juice isn't worth the squeeze. Yeah, it incrementally makes it slightly better, but not the massive thing that you saw in, in sort of scaling or sort of in, in piloting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why, you know, you really need to manage your portfolio of interventions well, because, you know, a company isn't one intervention. It's thousands of interventions. It's a million tiny decisions that we make um, and can change and they all compete with each other. And so we need to to uh, view them and, and practice them in harmony, even if we sort of test them in isolation. So, I mean, would there be one part of this process that is more important than the other, or is the whole process sort of key here? You know, I would say, uh, I'll answer that. I'll answer that in the framework of the book itself. Right. So meaning if what we want to, if the intention of the book is to get people to, you know, create things that change behavior, the all of the things in the book are important interventions towards doing that but by far the the single thing that will have the most effect is getting people to write a behavioral statement consciously mm-hmm. articulate the behavior you are in fact trying to change you know we could take this show for a second right like have you actually really thought down sat down Xavier and thought about okay when someone listens to my show what do i want them to do differently Hmm. Right. This interview will be a failure if people walk away from it and they don't behave differently. Hmm. Right. And so, you know, everything else sort of falls away in comparison to the critical, critical point of, sure. of spending time articulating what we want people to do. Yeah, I love that. I, I wholly agree on that point. Um, you know, I, I know, Matt, I know that there are, you know, startup founders that follow you and it, you know, it almost seems like some of these kids are kind of looking for this secret code that's hidden somewhere and it's going to solve this formula of how to make them, their company succeed maybe. But I mean, do you, do you have any advice for them? Do you, any, we're about to, we're about to end the show. Is there, is there anything that you want to touch on that we didn't cover maybe? Uh, man, what would I share with them? Uh, we talked a little bit about it, but I, I think I'll go, I'll, I'll, I'll end sort of close to where we started, which is the beautiful and powerful thing about behavior change and the focus on behavior change is that it levels the playing field, right? In a world where we don't focus on behavior change, basically whoever has the biggest ad budget wins, right? And and you can pick whatever your version of ad budget is. Most followers on Twitter, or, you know, knows natural beauty or biggest boobs or I don't give a shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like pick your thing, right? Whatever raw natural resource draws attention, they win. And I'm not cool. I'm not particularly physically attractive. Uh, you know, I, I'm from a very rural part of the country. Uh, I'm a first generation college kid. Power. There is immense power in, in an, an egalitarian power in behavior change. And so if I, you know, there was something that the young entrepreneurs of the world, you know, took away from this. I, I, what I would hope it would be is that they 
can have power in the world. They can create change. And that can be big change, small change. It can be whatever kind of change they want to create if they are you know, thoughtful about what is the impact that they want to have, right? And so you know, I set out to write this book. What I decided was that what I wanted my legacy to be was empowering people to create behavior change. And so I got very, very focused on doing the things I needed to do to make it possible for other people to, to create behavior change. And I think whoever you are out there, whoever needs to hear this, you know, you have the power to change behavior, your own and others. And I hope you use that wisely and thoughtfully and, and um, not only ethically, but also in a way that, that brings you a satisfactory and, and sort of lovely life. And hopefully in a way that makes the world a better place, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, as I said, you know, I, I think you are free to use it however you want. But it is always a useful thing to say, if I do this, who will I put on the other side of the table for me? You know, there's the old, the old ethical check that everyone uses, which is, I, would I be ashamed to tell my mother about this, right? I think that, that you know, thinking really thoughtfully about who am I aligning myself with, against and with, particularly in this time, at least in the US where, you know, uh, we are, I don't know that I think that I agree that we're a more divided country than we've ever been before, although people like to say that, but I think Mm -hmm. we, people are displaying their beliefs, Mm -hmm. you know, in very obvious and visible ways in a way that, um, you know, you have to be very thoughtful about, about what you're going to create in the world now more than ever. Yeah. It is so important uh, what you're going to create and who for. And and I hope you use that thoughtfully. But, but you know, it's been a, a lot of fun to talk to you, Xavier. And I, I appreciate you taking the time and inviting me on. Um, what do you want to talk about that we didn't get to talk about? Uh, I mean, I think we covered, you know, pretty much everyone, everything that I wanted to touch on in this conversation. I, I really enjoyed it as well. I, you know, it, it kind of flew by. Um how do I say your last name? Because you, you did I it missed... perfectly. Okay. You did wonderfully. I, I, first of all, I don't really know how to say it. It's French Belgian. <laughs> and you know, I, it's funny. I gave a talk at the French embassy maybe a year or so ago. Ironically, actually the very night I found out that, that, the, the, that, uh, uh, that, that I was offered the book deal, they like called me in the middle of the party and said, you know, we want to offer you this thing. You should check your email. That's and, amazing. But it was an amazing party because everyone said my last name perfectly and beautiful <laughs> right like you know everywhere i go no one really knows how to say it including me and then there's this room full of people who are like oh matt well yeah it's so nice to meet you i'm like oh that's amazing right I, nobody's asking me how to say it. it's beautiful uh, but it so you know americans mostly say it wallard i'm sure it's something beautiful in french like well yeah or something but i i don't know so you know that guy that guy usually works that guy over there the behavioral science guy you know that guy the bald one right there. <laughs> it's hilarious, man. It's really fun to talk to you. Matt, where do people find your work if they don't know about you? Website? Yeah, it's everything is just my name. It's mattwaller.com and, and I'm Matt Waller on Twitter and all those sorts of things. And, and you know, one of the things that is a little bit different about me is I, um, I don't believe in double opt-in intros or any of those, those sorts of things, which VCs sort of insist on these days. I try and keep an open calendar. And so there is a link 
on my website, on LinkedIn, other places where if you feel like you need to talk to me, um, you can book a 30 minute slot. It's free. I'm happy to talk to you. You know, it, sometimes it's booked six months in advance, so you may have to be a little patient, but, but you know, you can, you can find time and I will find time, whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever, you know, help you need. Um, please use one of those channels, whether it's booking a call or Twitter or sending me an email or whatever it is to ask for that help. I think, um, you know, underrepresented folks, people from backgrounds um, that, that aren't necessarily privileged, um, they don't learn to ask for help because, you know, it's a, in a totally rational way, by the way. I don't think it's an irrational actor problem. They don't ask for help because so often they have not gotten it or know they won't get it. But the problem is, as you grow in power, you necessarily need help from other people. And so, you know, I invite you to take this opportunity that if you do need help, you know, ask Xavier, ask me, ask someone um, for the help that you need. Amazing. I love that, Matt. What a pleasure to just hang out with you and talk about this. It it was really fun. Um, and that's such a huge service that you're offering to people. Guys, we're going to get out of here. That this What an amazing interview. My guest, Matt Wallert. And the book is called Start at the End, How to Build Products That Create Change. Thank you guys so much for listening if you've made it this far. And... Make sure you click like and subscribe to the, the show if you're listening to this on YouTube. If you're listening on the podcast, please get over to iTunes, leave us a review, good or bad. We really learn from those. I really learn from them as well. So um, yeah, thank you so much for being here. And next week we have uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton. I've been sending him emails for six years so it's gonna be a really good show that's on tuesday next week thank you guys so much for being here good night